Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It gives me a great pleasure to welcome our guest uh, to this evening event, uh, which forms part of the LSE Festival, How Do We Get to the Post-COVID World, which takes, has taken place from the 13th um, of June to Saturday the 18th. So there's still a day of these events tomorrow. Uh, and we're exploring the practical steps that we could be taking to shape the better, a better world. My name is Tomila Lankin. I'm a professor of international relations in the Department of IR, International Relations at LIC. And I'm very pleased to welcome Alif Shafak to both our online audience and our audience here. I'm pleased to see so many people. Um, Very popular event. Elif Shafak, as I'm sure many of you know, is an award-winning British-Turkish novelist. Her work has been translated into 55 languages, and she's an author of 19 books, 12 of which are novels. She's the best-selling author in many countries around the world. Her novel, 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, was shortlisted for multiple awards, and her previous novel, The 40 Rules of Love, was chosen by the BBC as one of the 100 novels that shaped our world. Today, we will be discussing the ideas in her latest novel, The Island of Missing Trees, a copy of which you can buy behind there is a stall um, right after the event, and there will be a signing as well uh, for those of you who purchased the book. We will explore what we as a society and as individuals can do to bring about a better post-COVID world. As usual, there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to Elif Shafak. For our online audience, you can submit your questions via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Please include your name and affiliation. And for those of you here in the theater, I will let you know when we will open the floor for questions. That will be in about uh, 35 minutes after the discussion. Um, And uh, please raise your hand and wait for the stewards with the roving microphone to get to you and please let us know your name and affiliation, those of you who will be asking questions from the audience. I'll try to ensure a range of questions from both our online and offline audience are asked. Finally, for the Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSC Festival. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. It's been recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. So let us start with, uh, I will take my prerogative as a chair and begin with a question, and hopefully we'll have a 35, 30 to 35 minute of a conversation. So in your wonderful new book, you write about historical memory that is something that cannot be erased, not least because in the next generation, children want to know to open the closets. How can we move on if the search for our identity is so powerful and yet it unleashes new traumas, new wounds, so poignantly illustrated in Ada's scream? Mm. We started with a tough question. (laughs) Um, I really appreciate the question. It's one that resonates with me and I also am very happy to be here. It's wonderful to be at LSC. I'm really looking forward to your questions uh, and your comments. If anything I say doesn't make sense, please also share that with me. Uh, I really care about this question and I also find it observed a lot, particularly on both sides of the Atlantic. What I do observe is these intergenerational memories and silences. So we usually talk about family stories, but I think we need to talk about family silences as well. And those family silences shape us, even when we don't know quite what they're about, and perhaps especially then they shape us. So my point is absences shape us as well, not only stories, but also silences. And I think they matter. But what I have been witnessing over and over, and I don't know if this will resonate with you, is that the first generation of immigrants, exiles, or any family that comes from a complicated background, any family that has experienced some kind of displacement, when you look at the elderly, the first generation, 
These are the people who have experienced the biggest hardships, right? Our great grandparents or grandparents, but they don't have a language. They don't even know how to express it. And they do not talk about that. So it just remains inside, bottled up inside their chests. And then when you look at the second generation, understandably, the second generation is not that interested in digging into the past because they have to build a new life. They have to be forward-looking, future-oriented. They have to find their feet, tabula rasa, new beginning, which means it's the third or fourth generation sometimes in these families, the youngest in these families who are asking the biggest questions about identity, about memory, about their ancestors' journeys. So you can come across young people carrying old memories. And I'm very intrigued by that. And I hear another question within your question in the sense that it's not easy to dig into these stories. I understand that. I respect that. But I think silences can be quite problematic as well, because in order to heal, we have to remember first, both as communities, societies, but also as individuals. If we don't remember, we cannot repair. What we don't repair, we're bound to repeat again and again. So for me, it's a big part of healing process to be able to talk about the past, both the beauties, but also the atrocities of the past. I think memory is a responsibility. Certainly these uh, insights, and I was read, as I was reading the book, it very, very powerfully resonated with me. And I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of you in the audience because I come from a family of Gulag survivors. So my grandfather was born, my, my, my father was born in the Gulag because both his parents were in the Gulag. Mm. And I also come from a family where people kept quiet about this, yeah. exactly as you write in your book. So, you know, being a Russian in, in a completely different historical national context, you know, I find the what you're raising, also this intergenerational dynamics, very, very powerful. Um, but I also find that different people did cope, and just as you write, deal with this very, very differently, even within the same family. Some prefer to even raise their children with silences, um, and others with kind of opening the closets and unleashing all of these mm. different um, tra traumatic, perhaps, dynamics that you talk about. Absolutely. And I, I'm not blaming the parents who don't want to talk about the past either, because it's not easy. And also, sometimes with good intentions, most of the time with good intentions, because they want to spare the new generation of the pain of this past. And they want the young people to have a light, you know, happy life, that they shouldn't be burdened with the ghosts of the past. So that is a very benevolent, actually, intention. But I don't think it works well in the long run, because understandably, many young people want to know, and they have questions to ask, and they sense it. Even if they don't, maybe the family doesn't talk about it, doesn't mean the youngsters in the family do not sense those absences. So I think in the long run, both for societies, also for communities, also for families, it is healthier to be able to talk about the past rather than just to have all these gaps of silences in the middle. Absolutely. And in your novel, you explore these dilemmas really masterfully. So let me also try start bringing in some of the characters uh, without giving away too much, because there is a lot of suspense. You will be really gripped. It's a really fantastic novel. So in reading about Ada's quest, and she's one of the main characters, um, um, sorry, uh, 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 in uh, about Daphne's quest to exhume the remains of the dead who perished in 1974. I was reminded about one of the lines I said in uh, a video that LAC recorded uh, promoting my own book, which is also available for you um, behind here. Um, and the line was uh, that when we think about, when we talk about the Bolshevik revolution in Russia, we talk about the people like the aristocracy or the tradesmen, the bourgeoisie, the priests, that they simply disappeared and the whole new order ushered in. Because we know that the millions who perished in the gulag or the thousands uh, who were executed, we know about those people. But I said in that video that the people don't just disappear. And to to me, Daphne's exhumation of the dead is a powerful metaphor of the futility of burying the past. It lives on with us. 
in the fig tree. The fig tree is a very important character in this, um, in this novel. It lives on in the wells, in hidden burial grounds that one day we will come across. So could you talk a bit about what that exhumation work symbolizes from your own um, perspective? Yeah. And I think you've already touched upon that, yeah. but maybe we could also talk about how you came up with these characters, whether it's sort of based on any concrete stories of real people, quote yeah. unquote. Yeah, I, I really appreciate. Um, maybe I should tell you right away that I've been wanting to write about Cyprus for a very long time. You know, uh, as those of you who are familiar with the island, um, I, I think would agree with me. This is a beautiful island with beautiful people, north and south. And yet at the same time, it's not an easy story. It's not an easy story because the past is not a bygone affair. I think the past is still alive. The past is still breathing and the wounds are still bleeding, right? They have not healed yet. So depending on whom you talk to, there are clashing memories. There are clashing um, remembrance of the past. As you know, there's a, there's a border which is guarded by United Nations, um, which literally separates Christians from Muslims Greek Cypriots from Turkish Cypriots. So there's a frontier that cuts along both religious and ethnic lines. So the dilemma for an author is how do you even approach such a complicated story without yourself falling into the trap of nationalism, without yourself falling into the trap of tribalism, right? So I couldn't find an angle for a very long time. I've been thinking, reading, researching, listening, absorbing, but I was not able to even approach the story until I found the fig tree or the fig tree found me. So it might sound irrational, probably it is, but I feel very grateful to this tree because she, it's an immigrant tree, she allowed me to take a completely different approach and I needed that. And the second thing I want to share with you is that um, I lived in the States for a couple of years. I used to be a visiting scholar there. And I never forget when I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, winters were very cold, extremely chilly. And I met some Portuguese American families who would bury their fig trees under the ground if the winters were particularly harsh. So this is a botanical technique. You literally dig a trench, you prune these trees, they lose some roots, you push them gently under the ground, they remain under the ground, and come next spring, you unbury these trees, and they're healthy. So this technique helped me to approach incredibly difficult subjects. As you might know, there's a bicommunal organization in Cyprus, and I have a lot of respect for these people. It's called the Committee on Missing Persons. It was launched by the United Nations, but it's the islanders, it's the Cypriots who are doing the real work, and Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots are working together, and many of them are women, and many of them are young people, and many of them are volunteers. And what they're doing basically is to dig the ground to find the bones of people who went missing during the time of the troubles. And of course, this is an incredibly moving subject that will resonate with anyone who comes from Guatemala, from Chile, from Argentina, Spain after the civil war, Bosnia after the genocide, and most recently with the Yazidi genocide. There are Yazidi families right now who are digging the ground, looking for the bones of their loved ones. So this is a universal subject. And I think the tree allowed me to approach this issue of how do you unearth, right, pain, how do you unearth pain? The, the people who work for the Committee on Missing Persons, they're not digging the ground in order to revive old animosities. They're not trying to revive old hatreds, just the opposite. They want to give the dead dignity, a proper burial, a name, a tombstone, and the families, maybe a possibility for closure and the possibility for healing. So I see that work and I respect that work. But of course, these are very difficult subjects to open up. Fascinating. Uh, since you mentioned the, the tree and the technique of, uh, you know, kind of keeping it alive in very cold climes and in, in the case of your book in, in, in Britain, which is not very suitable, I, I am afraid to say, yeah. climate for growing, <laughs> I, 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 I suspect for growing a, a fig tree com compared to Cyprus. But I should mention that this book is almost also a really kind of fascinating 
I don't know if I should use the word textbook, but it's got very interesting sort of snapshots that are about different, the plant world, the animal world, you know, the ants, the, the songbirds, they come so alive. And, you know, you actually learn a lot about the, 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 this, this other world that we don't notice about these sentient, you know, the animals and the plants. Uh, it's really absolutely fascinating. But of course, also the, the conflicts from different um, um, historical um, sort of conflict areas across the globe. And so in that sense, it's also a very informative book. And I'm a political scientist and I found I really learned a lot. And I'm sure my uh, colleagues who study conflicts and, and post-conflict reconciliation will also really um, appreciate it. Uh, perhaps a sort of relate question also on picking up on some of the things uh, you were descri describing or discussing just now. Um, so the, the, the main protagonists are a married couple. Well, it begins with um, a couple who are, who are lovers, um, who fall in love in Cyprus. And, um, and, 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 um, and uh, there, is a, there is a very, very tragic uh, story there. But they, they both have very different ways of coping with their traumas. So uh, Daphna embraces the cause of reconciliation through exhuming the remains of the victims of the, the massacres, right? Um, communal massacres in Cyprus. And Costa is immersed in the life of plants and animals. So is there, um, is, is kind of the fig, the metaphor for, for the transcendental, and that is what Costa's, Costa's passions symbolize? Or is it just a kind of different ways of coping with this? Very, very different ways. And there is a kind of tension there. They, for de deeply as the, 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 the two people love each other, they have very, very different ways of kind of coming to terms, right? Absolutely. What is the symbolism there? You know, um, we've been talking about division. We've been talking about partition um, and tribalism, essentially. But I think in this book, I wanted to focus on those things that, despite the odds, managed to travel beyond borders. So for instance, migrating birds, they do, they do travel. Butterflies, they don't care about, you know, which side is Greek, which side is Turkish, means nothing. Um, or superstitions travel. When religions clash, superstitions travel. So you, if you look at the Greek Cypriot grandmother and the Turkish Cypriot grandmother, pretty much they're doing similar things in order to ward off the evil eye. Food travels. I sometimes think in the Levant, we have these baklava wars, right? We think the Lebanese think they make the best baklava. We Turks are actually very confident that our baklava is the best. And of course, the Greeks say no way. But the beauty of food is it's nobody's baklava, right? Because it does travel. It does defy all those nationalistic cliches that we human beings take for granted. Similarly, stories travel right? Um, lullabies travel, legends travel, and I think love travels, sisterhood travels. I am not claiming it's easy, it is difficult, and the people that we're talking about, they are scarred, they are bruised. So this is the kind of love that it has a price as well, but it's not impossible. So I am very interested in those things that manage to connect. How do we connect beyond borders? in a world that constantly pushes us into boxes and tells us that we cannot understand each other because we come from different backgrounds. We cannot love each other because we come from different cultures. Despite these teachings, human beings continue to connect. That to me was important, but I'm not underestimating what you said. There are different personalities. They deal with trauma in a different way. Let us not forget that one of the biggest differences between them is that one of them stays, the other one leaves. Now, I think this, I have observed this in country after country, you know, those who stay and those who leave. It's a very difficult existential gap that opens up. Those who stay incredibly hard every day, they have to deal with the bruises, scars. Those who leave seem to have an easier life, but actually maybe they never heal. So to be an immigrant, to be an exile, to be a diaspora, whatever you call it, there is a melancholy that keeps coming with you, but it's difficult to talk about. And I think the third layer we need to unpack is Costas, as you said, he cares about animals, plants, the suffering of animals, 
basically what he sees is an ecosystem. This land also belongs to trees. This land also belongs to fruit bats. We human beings were very arrogant. We think we're superior to all other creatures. We have become consumers. We consume nature and just discard it. But from a tree's perspective, if I may put it this way, there is no such thing as ugly animals, cute animals. How do we make that distinction? We think as humans, some animals are cute, some animals are ugly. That's nonsense. From a tree's point of view, everything is interconnected. So fruit bats, for instance, if we enjoy fruits as human beings, we owe it to bats who carry, who help with pollination. You know, these birds, insects, the creatures that we belittle, we owe them so much. So I think it's this emphasis on connectivity, ecosystem, which can be a spiritual thing as well, that I find fascinating. I'm, I'm a big believer in ecofeminism, and I think uh, these are conversations that we need urgently, especially now. Can I just pick up on some of the things you said? So, you know, this kind of the, this... Um, Uh, the notions of uh, kind of one whole and ecosystem. But then you also talked uh, earlier about the sisterhood. And that's where another very interesting character comes in, uh, Miriam or Miriam, am I pronouncing uh, yeah, yeah. correctly? So she's definitely a sister. And, and again, to pick up on something else, you said one of them stays in Cyprus, the other one moves to uh, to London. Um, and there's just, and, they have, and they're both very, very different, but there's also another set of characters that is brought with uh, Miriam, along with, you know, just very kind of her rich world of, I don't want to use necessarily the word superstition, but she's just very interesting, very kind of grounded and very earthly personality. And there she brings us to the clairvoyants and the psychics. Um, and soothsayers. And my favorite of those is a Russian woman called Madame Margosha. <laughs> I'm a Russian, so I thought she was, uh, she, that character was really great. And each time I was, I think there are several psychics that come sort of here, appear in the book in different places. And But each time I was, you know, I'm sort of really reading in great suspense, you know, they're going to predict something, tell the future. But each time the reader is left a little bit, mm, and then nothing happens. So are you trying to say is the bigger message is that we should find our own past and future, forge it ourselves and not rely on psychics to navigate these quests and dilemmas. So it's almost like you leave it hanging, right? You never, I don't think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, any of what the psychics say is ever I mean, there was something about the well, when she said something about the well or water, and I thought, aha, that's, uh, you know, I read it very carefully. You I see, think, yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm very intrigued uh, in, in your comments. I really appreciate them. I think basically I'm interested in this clash, if I may put it this way, between rationality and irrationality. And um, primarily because I was raised by two women. I was raised by women, my mother and my grandmother, and they were very different. My mom is very, you know, I'm using these terms cautiously, but to give you an idea, she's very westernized, very urban, very modern, very rational, very well-educated. Um, and my grandma, I think, would tick off all the other boxes. <laughs> so she's very rational. She was very superstitious more Anatolian, more into oral culture, she had been denied a proper education for being a girl. So she was pulled out of school um, and she wasn't well educated. And she was one of the wisest human beings I've ever met in my life. So she taught me that there are different approaches to knowledge. But I think my point is from one of them, I got my respect for written culture, for books, for literature, for libraries. But from the other one, from my grandmother, I got my respect for oral culture, which is sometimes belittled, especially by intellectuals. It's regarded as a domain of ignorant women. You know, I've never had that approach. There's something there. In, even in the most ridiculous superstitions, there's our deepest fears. They are the reflection of something. And also I realized for women like my grandmother or like Mariam, I feel like I know Mariam because as I said, I was raised by such women. These women wanted to tell you things. They had very difficult lives, but they didn't know how to talk about their difficult lives. So instead they would feed you. 
right? So <laughs> really, instead they would feed you. And for them, food is a language. And maybe they hold a naive belief that if we could all sit around the same table and break bread together and maybe share a cup of water together, maybe there would be less misunderstandings in the world. So food is the way they communicate themselves. They express themselves. Uh, for me, basically what I'm trying to say is I do not try to dictate answers. I don't like it when actually novelists try to preach or teach. You know, I don't know the answers myself. We're all confused in a world like this. But I think it's a novelist's job to ask questions, including difficult questions about difficult issues, and then open up conversations, you know, open up free, inclusive spaces of diversity. And within that story, as the story unfolds, leave the answers to the reader. I have to respect that because every reader is going to come up with their own answers. I have met couples who have been married to each other for 45 years. They read the same book. They read it in a completely different way. I have seen very good friends. One of them loves the book. The other one hates it. Why? Because we bring our own gaze into the story. So my point is, I'm always interested in the questions, you know, about rationality, irrationality, memory, amnesia, but I'm not trying to dictate a particular set of answers. I don't know the answers myself. Absolutely. And that very much also kind of shines through uh, this, you know, you, you're, you're, you're showing, you're, you're not telling and you're prompting a lot of questions and also a lot of associations, you know, just to come to you, back to your point about how two different people from the same family could be very different. So I grew up in a family where, you know, there was my mother and also an aunt and we spent a lot of time with our aunt in the Crimea and my mother and my aunt were complete antipodes. My mother was probably like your mother, intellectual, oriental languages, you know, professor, etc. My aunt, her own sister, was this folk Russian woman, uneducated. She was a nurse all her life. And in some primordial way, I felt closer in some ways to my aunt because to me, she epitomized the Russian identity that I think is kind of somehow lost behind these esoteric sort of intellectual and maybe I think that's how you know your 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 own sort of grandmother maybe that's what 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 she brought to your life this kind of earthiness and you know certainly that those are the kind of associations I, I was thinking about as I was reading and there is no there is no simple good or right knowledge there and, and wrong knowledge there are just different ways of um, there are different types of knowledge and wisdom. I think wisdom would probably work. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. And I think I do make a distinction between information, knowledge and wisdom. I think they're completely separate things. And maybe one of the dilemmas of our age is that we're living in an age in which we're bombarded by information. We have way too much information, more than we can ever process, but we have very little knowledge and even less wisdom. And you will remember there was so much emphasis on information, especially in uh, early 2000s. You know, you're, you're much younger than me, but those of you who will remember uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, you know, this optimism, extreme optimism about digital technologies. If you spread information, democracy is going to spread. Uh, back then, I remember a young couple in Egypt, they had they named their newborn baby daughter Facebook. <laughs> and, and I also remember a, a family in Israel about six months later, they named their child, their third child, like. So this is, this is the mood of early 2000s. And I, I do think about those kids who are now older, of course, Facebook in Egypt and like in Israel. You know, what kind of a world have we given them? Because now we have swung into, into pessimism. So uh, let's put more emphasis on knowledge and, and ultimately, hopefully, into into wisdom. I think knowledge, you, you can't rush knowledge. It's, it's very different than snippets of information. Information makes us arrogant too, because it gives me the impression that I know something about everything, but I have forgotten to say, I don't know. You know, when was the last time we ever said, I don't know? I don't have to say, I don't know, because I can Google it. But that's an illusion. So I think for knowledge, we need conversations like this. We need to slow down. We need slow journalism. Festivals, cultural festivals, books, but 
especially for wisdom, I do believe we need emotional intelligence and empathy as well. So that brings the mind and the heart together. So we need art, we need literature. One thing, if I may come back to your point about different women, what stayed with me from my, you know, being raised by a mother and a grandmother, what stayed with me most vividly is the sisterhood, is the way they supported each other. We can be very different. We can be different in our approaches to life, but do we support each other, especially as women, especially as minorities? Otherwise, I think it means nothing if you have a few seemingly successful women in the world of business, a few seemingly successful women in the world of whatever, media, this and that, means nothing if we don't learn to pull each other up together. So my life changed a lot because my grandmother supported my mother at a very critical moment in her life. And I've never forgotten that. So I do sincerely believe that if and when women support each other, the impact of that goes beyond generations. Absolutely. And, you know, somebody coming from the former Soviet Union, which is a whole different story, full of traumas, etc. The women that really resonated, the women and the sisterhood and the mutual support and the kind of the absent men because they're killed or repressed or whatever. You know, that that certainly resonated very, very powerful part part of your story. You mentioned literature and and communication. So we, we have about three minutes, I would say, before we start the Q&A. And I wanted to ask um, you about writing. You write beautifully, uh, really, really very beautiful prose. How do you achieve the harmony, harmony of narrative and style? How do you know when, after layers of editing and polishing, the sentences, that's it, it's the right sentence, and you're happy with it, and you sort of move on? You know. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm honored that you think I do know the answers, but actually, writers are always a bit lost. Uh, we are full of self-doubt. We are full of anxiety. It doesn't matter whether it's your first book, fifth book, tenth book. It really doesn't matter. Some weeks you feel like, wow, I have a great story, you know, superb. And then the next week it all comes crumbling down and this huge value of self-doubt you go to. What I learned over the years is that that too is part of the writing process. You know, that too is okay. You know, sometimes you take things out, sometimes you delete, sometimes you destroy. But I do really treasure the art of storytelling. You know, if we put love into our labor, into what we're doing, um, maybe that, that makes a bit of difference. Like, if, do you really love it? Do you really enjoy it is important. I'm also a big believer in interdisciplinary conversations. You know, if I may say this, uh, sometimes readers, and it's usually male readers who do this, they come and they say so much is happening in the world. So I read politics, I read finance, I read about technology, history, but I don't have time for fiction. My wife reads fiction, you know, my girlfriend reads fiction. And when I hear that, I really feel sad because as if there's this distinction, like fiction is connected with emotions and then nonfiction is connected, connected with rational analysis. In my opinion, that's nonsense. I think inside fiction, there's everything. Whatever is the subject of life is the subject of fiction. So inside fiction, there is politics, there is history, there is philosophy, psychology, but perhaps most importantly, there's emotional intelligence. And I don't know a single human being who doesn't need to connect with their emotions. Whatever we do in life, whether you're politicians, dentists, designer, students, professors, we have to be able to connect with our own emotions. So there are things that fiction does in its own way. But ultimately, I think it's better for the human mind and for the human soul to read across the board. Let's read everything, you know, anything that speaks to us in that moment of time. So we can read political philosophy. Let's also read neuroscience. Let's also read cookbooks. You know, there's no such thing as highbrow literature, lowbrow literature. Who even makes those distinctions? But let's also read a lot of fiction. So we need more men to read fiction. And we need more across the board, eclectic reading lists, because that is what nourishes the intellect. And I think that's what nourishes the human soul as well. So these are the things that motivate me. Um, and, and I do have a, a lot of respect for the art of storytelling, because I think it has a capacity to rehumanize people who have been dehumanized. Uh, I don't want to take too much time, but if you know, there are more questions, I would love to dwell upon that.
Thank you. So, so actually, you you very nicely. Uh, I think you've addressed uh, the last question that I was going to ask because the, the last, and maybe you've uh, you you have just a couple of words on that. What is your advice to aspiring writers who want to write fiction or nonfiction that speaks to the big issues of the day and that makes us think? So you talk about this kind of the bridging between all this, you know the quote unquote academic or sort of um, information uh, type um, uh, works and the kind of the more fiction stuff. But in your in your book, I can see that it's very nicely fused. Um, so what, what would be your advice for, for people who are trying to, because your work also makes a difference to the real world. You know, people will be reading it and thinking about the uh, coming to terms uh, with uh, conflict and trauma, moving on, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think, you know, as writers, we need to be two things. We need to be readers primarily. We need to keep reading, but also to be good listeners. Just try to listen what people are saying, not only what they're saying, but how they're saying what they're saying, with what kind of emotions, where are the silences, where are the gaps, where are the pauses? To me, that's a very important question. So writers should not only chase stories. I think we need to respect and try to understand silences. Who are the people who are pushed to the margins? What are the stories we never hear about? You know, Who are the people who have been left voiceless, left behind, left out? These things matter. So to try to bring the periphery to the center, to try to make the invisible a bit more visible, to try to make the unheard a bit more heard, I think lies at the core of literature. So in that sense, there's a rebellion at the core of literature. But if I may quickly add this, one thing that stayed with me, I've never forgotten, I used to go to schools uh, at some point a lot in Turkey because I had a children's book out. It gave me a chance to meet young readers. I'm talking about really young readers. Now, if you talk to a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old Turkish child or Egyptian child or Jordanian child, they are no different than a six or seven-year-old Canadian, Norwegian, or Swedish child, right? At that age, children have so much courage, so much confidence, chutzpah. And interestingly, at that age, girls are just as confident, if not even more confident than boys. But then I would go and, you know, meet students of an older age group. Now you're talking about high school students. Everything has changed. So if you ask in a classroom full of younger students, is there anyone here who is writing fiction? Almost all of the hands go up. Is there anyone here who is writing poetry? Again, all the hands go up. Ask the same question to 18-year-old, 17-year-old young people. Nobody puts their hands up. And just as equally important for me was to observe that young women or young girls at that age have become timid. Why? Because we taught them, blend in, don't stand out, watch out what you're wearing, how you speak, the tone of your voice, whether you laugh out loudly, you will be judged. And to such an extent, we learned this, that even when there's no one around, when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm still judging myself through the eyes of patriarchy. And what that does to our soul is that it crushes our creativity. We are scared of being different. We cannot do art or creative work if we are scared of being different. So rather than uh, looking for inspiration, of course, we will be inspired by each other. But my point is just to remember who we were as children that natural, organic, innate creativity that we always had. How do we revive that? How do we you know, revive our inner garden, I think is, is a crucial question. This is so uplifting. It's, it's uh, sad and depressing, but simultaneously just very, and very sensible advice as well. Just bring out the inner, remember what we, remember. especially as women, what we yeah. were like. When remember what we were like, you know, we before were we lost our courage. Yeah. And the confidence. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that also is very, certainly uh, strikes a, a chord with a lot of professional women, uh, I must say as well. So I think, I'm sure the audience has a lot of questions questions. We'll move on to the Q&A. Uh, we'll have to end uh, with the Q&A session uh, at 35 minutes past seven. We do have some time. So um, we'll start with the audience in the, in the hall. Um, and those of you who are 
joining us online, please type your short questions in the, to the Q&A box. We'll try to answer as many possible, uh, name and affiliation, uh, don't forget that. So thank you very, very oh, sorry. <laughs> So there's a, there's a yeah. question there. Yeah. Okay, so we'll start there. Yeah. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned that you were interdisciplinary and I, I agree with you. As a storyteller, you are a historian, a, a social psychologist, a behaviorist. So I'm going to ask you an economics question. Yeah, that's all right. Um, how do we heal globalization? And from a humanistic point of view, what is your antidote to numbness? Thank you. Such, such a powerful, such a beautiful question. And also urgent, right? Universally urgent. I'm someone who just likes to learn from different disciplines. But what troubles me is this dualistic way of thinking, these binary oppositions that we're constantly being pushed into. And I think this is happening a lot, especially with the rise of populism and populist demagoguery. We are being told that you can either be a nationalist or you can be a globalist. I don't want to have any of these options. Can I not please have a third option, maybe a fifth option? Why don't we create a ninth option? Can we not have different, a new narrative? I think we can. My point is, I think it's such a shame that at a moment when we have climate destruction, it is happening right now, yeah, in front of our eyes, at a moment of widening and deepening inequalities, at a moment when there's such a huge backlash against women's rights, but also LGBTQ plus rights, at a moment when democracies are so fragile, and also at a moment of pandemics, you know, we will see more of this, when everything shows us that we are interconnected to such an extent that a virus originating from one part of the world can affect the lives and livelihoods of people continents away. It all shows us that we are interconnected. At such a moment, what we are, what we are doing is to revive tribalism. What we're doing is to revive isolationism. I don't think we can solve these global challenges with the language or the rhetoric or the forces of nationalism. So I'm a big believer in international conversations, international solidarity, but I honestly think, and more and more I've come to believe in this as years go by, especially women and minorities do not have the luxury of being apolitical. Our voices matter, we have to speak up. I know it's not easy and I'm not talking about party politics. I'm not interested in that. I'm not definitely not talking about partisan politics. I'm talk talking about politics in a feminist sense. By, by which I mean, wherever there's power inequality, that is politics. So you might be talking about sexuality. You might be writing about gender discrimination. That's also political. But what my point is, we need to hear each other's voices. And you so kindly mentioned the word numbness. I think it's so crucial. This is a moment in which we are all burdened, bombarded by lots of negative emotions, whether it's anxiety, fear, disappointment, bewilderment, frustration, all of which is human. But if there's one emotion that really scares me, it's the lack of all emotions, and that's numbness. So the moment we stop caring about what's going on in Afghanistan, you know, if girls are stopped at school gates, but if my answer to that is, well, it's happening somewhere else, right? The moment we stop caring about each other's stories, sorrows, pains, and we retreat into apathy, and we become desensitized and disconnected and indifferent, I think that world is going to be a much, much more difficult place to live in. So, yes, it's a world of anxiety, but we have to make sure it's not a world of apathy. I see a hand, the lady here. You pass the mic. Yes, you. Hello, um, my name is Laika. I'm a PhD student from Cardiff University. Uh, thank you so much for the, the discussion. Um, my question is that uh, I'm interested in knowing when you write, uh, who do you imagine your audience to be? Thank you. Beautiful question. I honestly don't have um, a reader in mind. 
And this is something I learned early on. Actually, it was a reader who taught me this. Uh, if I may share it with you, many, many years ago, when my first novel was published in Turkey, I received a letter uh, from a reader, a university student, eight pages long, an amazing literary analysis. She was pointing out things that I had no clue were in the book. You know, she had found lots of connections that I wasn't aware of. It was beautiful literary analysis, and she had loved the book. But the last page of the letter ends by saying, she says, I have a friend, we come from a very similar cultural background, and she describes their socioeconomic position, you know, how she dresses up, everything. She gives me all these clues. And she says, this is my best friend. We share every secret. Um, you know, there isn't a single thing we don't know each, about each other. So I loved your book so much that I gave it to her. And she started reading 45 pages and then she returned and she said, what kind of a book is this? <laughs> so the, the reader was puzzled, genuinely puzzled. And the letter finished by saying, which one of us is right? You know, am I right? I got, did I get your book right? Or did she see something that I couldn't? And the beauty of literature, literature is that there's no right or wrong in that sense, because as we mentioned, every reader brings their own gaze. So when I look at human beings, I really do not see categories. I don't put people into categories. And I know even people who come, these young girls, I was, I'm talking about, they're both Turkish, they come from Muslim uh, and conservative backgrounds, you know, and, and they read the book in a completely different way. So that to me is always the key. Every reader is different, like our fingerprints. Every reading is unique. Um, the only thing I, I makes me happy is that to think, you know, if the story I'm writing means anything to someone I've never met in my life, that makes me happy because writing is a very solitary task, especially the life of a novelist. Walter Benjamin used to call it the loneliest art form because when you do other art forms, you cooperate with people. But when you're a novelist, you're really alone for long stretches of time. So to learn that the story that you have imagined when you were all alone means something to someone is can be incredibly moving. That's the only thing I try to keep in mind. Let's try to get uh, some uh, a gentleman at the back, please, from this side. Uh, thank you for your thought-provoking arguments. Um, I want to. Could question. you please stand up so yeah, we can because we can hear you better that um, way. So, if we view a Russian invasion of Ukraine as the most recent case of a foreign-induced civil war. Uh, in a similar fashion as Russia did to Georgia or Moldova or the US with Serbia. So then for the reconciliation purposes, should we forgo cultural and languages, language differences for the sake of unity, or rather strive for the ultimate self-determination in the context of wars, genocides, and keeping in mind the international and international diversity? Thank you. Um, tough, tough questions you're asking me, but incredibly important questions. Like you, I am appalled by what's going on in Ukraine, the war, the invasion, the occupation. And also there are very difficult subjects that I don't think we're talking about enough, uh, which is violence, sexual violence, gender violence, how violence is used as a weapon of war. We have seen this against women, against minorities. You know, these are difficult conversations that we will be having. We're not having it yet. The humanitarian crisis, the suffering of families uh, and destruction of, of cities and, and, and culture. So all of this is incredibly important. How do you heal? How do you, you know, um, reconcile? I, I'm not in any way underestimating the importance of this. But my point is, I do make a distinction between governments and the people. And I know also, uh, first of all, I do prioritize right now the stories coming from Ukraine. There are so many stories that we need to learn and we need to help and we need to connect. Also, we need to connect with Syria. Also, we need to connect with Afghanistan. We have to, at the heart of it, I think we need to bear in mind that we're citizens of humanity. To me, this is so important. In this country, we have heard politicians saying, if you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. Right? Did we not hear this? I, I want to, you know, defy this argument. 
you, it doesn't mean that you have no um, love for your, your, for your own country. It doesn't mean that you have no care about your ancestors' land, but we can have multiple belongings like concentric circles. So while you are from here, you can also be from everywhere. You can also be a citizen of humankind. So I think it boils down to identity. But also let's bear in mind, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there are many people in Russia who are very brave and who are trying to protest to the best of their ability. It's not easy to live under authoritarianism. So I, would, I don't want to lose sight of that either. You know, people who go out and protest on the streets knowing that they will be arrested, knowing that they will be losing their jobs. There's a part of me that also wants to amplify the voice, voices of dissidents in authoritarian regimes. Can I just quickly add to that, that as somebody who is, um, um, you know, obviously absolutely also appalled at the horrific violence that Russia is inflicting on Ukraine, I'm deeply, deeply touched as, as a Russian. And, and, and one of the reasons why your book resonated is, is because, you know, and I put in, in a Twitter post about this event that, you know, both, uh, you know, the, the Russians and Ukrainians will be living with this trauma. Yeah of this horrific war, whether we protested against it as I did from day one on Trafalgar Square or not, you know, this is something that will live on. And, and you know, your book is really about how it just lives on and, you know, in the next generations. And, and this is really, uh, this, is, this is the reality of, of this. Yeah, but absolutely. And just to follow up on that, I think one thing I'm, I'm conscious of is that um, we need to prioritize the stories of victims, because if we tell the victims, just move on, you know, forget it, that's like adding insult to injury. Th that's why we need to talk about genocides, atrocities, not in order to get stuck in the past, but to honor people's suffering, but also hopefully build a better future together. So I think, again, remembering and being able to talk about silences is an important part of that, hopefully the healing process that will follow. Absolutely. We, I think we should probably move. I see lots of hands, but I think we should move to some questions from the online audience. If uh, our colleagues could, uh, is there somebody reading out? Yes, if you could read out. Uh, we'll take one by one, unless okay, you course. want to bunch them together. I'll speak now. Okay. Thank you. Um, we have... A number of questions, I'll read, should I read one by one? Maybe yeah. you can sift through and okay. then, yeah. So, um, Anik Edun says, I'm a current LSE student. Your perspective of talking about difficult experiences is really profound. However, could it perhaps be that older generations refuse to talk about a difficult past so as not to relieve their traumas? Um, Vyomesh Tanki, an LSC alum, says, can you say a little more today about what you mean by inherited pain? Yeah, yeah, beautiful questions. Really appreciate. Again, I think I'm going to go back to trees because there are very interesting scientific studies that show trees that have experienced some kind of trauma, like wildfires or droughts, can respond differently to upcoming traumas. Not only that, but trees that are descendants, you know, saplings that are descendants of trees that have experienced traumas also can respond differently. So in nature, actually, many scientists are asking these questions. Does some kind of, you know, I'm not going to call it memory, but something is transferred from one generation to another. Um, how does trauma change the structure, the character of a being? But when it comes to human beings, I think we find these questions very hard. You know, we talk about how we inherit the, maybe the, the shape of our forehead or the color of our hair from our great parents. But do we also inherit something as abstract as sorrow? You know, do we also inherit as something as abstract as melancholy? How do you explain the fact that within the same family, maybe you have three siblings, two of them are more cheerful by nature, but the third one is a bit more melancholic as if this is the third one who, who is carrying, you know, the stories of their great parents. I know these are abstract questions, but they're very important for fiction. 
And this is something that I observe again and again. So there's a moment in the book in which it says, you know, family traumas, if families are like trees, uh, then family traumas are like the resin that trickles down. You know, they do that, uh, you know, very uh, gradually falls down. So they trickle down generations. Um, so I think we need to talk about inherited pain, the possibility of inherited pain. But again, my point is not to be stuck in the past, but to learn from the past, to understand that memory is a responsibility. If I may quickly add this, maybe because I come from a country that has a very long history, rich history, Turkey has a very long history, that doesn't mean we have a strong memory. It doesn't translate into strong memory. We are, we are a society of collective amnesia in Turkey. Our entire relationship with the past is full of ruptures. And when you have these voids, usually those voids are filled in by ultra-nationalistic interpretations of the past that always talk about this glorious past. But as a storyteller, I know the, the, the story of the past changes depending on who is telling the story and who is not allowed to tell the story. So if you ask the same story to women, for instance, women, a concubine in the harem, maybe, you know, a, a, a peasant woman, someone who had no power, the story of the empire can change. If you ask the same question to minorities, the story might change. So again, where are the voiceless? Where are the untold stories? I think those are important questions when we're talking about trauma or inherited pain. Can I read a comment from yeah. a reader? Yeah, of course. Um, Susan Wolf, sorry, she says, um, my grandparents were all immigrants to America. I barely knew them. My parents too busy making their way. I lived far from their parents. The last house we lived in, a house in a town we left when I was nine, a house in which I felt so safe in a neighborhood I knew and loved in the backyard of that house, something I had forgotten until this talk in the backyard of that house in Georgia, with the sun shining on the leaves and the branches close to the ground, inviting me to climb them was a fig tree. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. Amazing. Beautiful. Let's take a couple more questions from, uh, from the live audience. I think I see a hand, uh, the lady in the first row. We'll start with you. Thank you. Um, my name is Aishen. Um, I'm a, a child of Turkish Cypriot parents who came here. Uh, and I'm here with my book club colleagues, uh, Mariana and, and uh, Pani. So I'm a Turkish Cypriot and Greek Cypriots here. So we read this book in anticipation to read about Cyprus. <clears throat> Thank you so much for this book. It's so eloquent, so beautifully written. And um, I'm a reader as opposed to an audio listener. Mm -hmm. And we were saying earlier, this book is one which would actually be listened to really, really well. It's just beautiful. And just hearing you today, you're so eloquent. Well done, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, my question is really about your research because as you pointed out, it's very difficult yeah. to take a to form a view when you're writing about such uh, a, a, an emotional subject and uh, you know there are things that people never agree on so how did you conduct your research to write this beautiful story but may i may i thank you for every word really it means a lot to me and to see you um, having this book club together i think it's incredibly moving i honestly think women are going to change the world i honestly think minorities are going to change the world and and these are the conversations that we need so it's it's amazing that you know what what you are creating together. I'm I'm very moved. Uh, also, your words mean a lot to me because you know this is your island, uh, and and thank you. The research was really crazy <laughs> because I I at some point my reading lists were like the lives of mosquitoes, um, asbestos mines in Cyprus. Um, it's it's just this crazy, completely seemingly unrelated things. But in my mind, they were, they were related. What I tried to do was constantly keep learning because, you know, I also wanted to unlearn what I knew because having been brought up in a Turkish family and I had family members, relatives who had been soldiers as Turkish soldiers in Cyprus, you grow up with stories about the other. 
And I think it's not only learning that we have to do. Sometimes we have to do unlearning as well. You have to unlearn some of the cliches, stereotypes, prejudices that you're not even aware of carrying inside. So, you know, learning and learning has to go side by side. But I found it fascinating. And this is, a, this is an island, I, I need not tell you this, is, that is so beautiful. But at the same time, it's a mystery to me that especially in this country, even though it's part of British history, even though it's one of the top destinations for British tourists every year, even though many people travel to Cyprus, rightly so, they, sh they should, the, the history, the complexity of that history, not very well known in this country. So that was interesting as well. And, and if I may add this very quickly, I learned the most, I think, from people who told me their stories. So there's a, as you know, there's a big community, Greek Cypriot community, Turkish Cypriot community, also Armenian Cypriot, very small, but uh, there is a community as well. And people, you know, share, they share food, they share stories and, and, and very warm hearted. So I think those are the things that really stayed with me the deepest. Can I just quickly add something to what you just said about the, the history that remains and I, uh, uh, the, the, the history of Cyprus? And that reminded me last summer for the first time we went to Cyprus. And unlike many tourists, we didn't want to just do the beach. We were dragging our 10-year-old son through the sweltering heat, through all the ruins, etc. And what struck me is that so much of the history you learn about through the unwritten. So for instance, we'd come across a deserted mosque in in the Greek part of you know, the island, and there would be hardly any information about, and you sort of have to imagine those, those people coming in, praying, the community, the life, now it's all deserted, weeds around, it's what remains unsaid, and, you know, I don't, I do think there's probably still a lot of conversations that needs to be done and need to be written down. Of course. Of course, absolutely. And, and if, if I may share this with you, at the back of the book, there's a very little bibliography if, if anyone is interested. But one of the books that moves me a lot is actually written by, is the personal accounts of um, the Committee on Missing Persons, you know, meeting those people, Greek Cypriots and Turkish Cypriots, meeting those women in particular. Uh, it's incredibly moving. Uh, if, if I remember the title correctly, it should be Under the Carob Trees. And, and so that's, that's a very moving book, Personal Witness Accounts. Uh, one question from the gentleman here. We have maybe about one minute before okay. we should stop. So maybe we'll, we'll wrap up with this last question. Thanks very much. I'll try to keep it brief. My name is Sid. I'm uh, an LSE alum and uh, I'm from Afghanistan, actually, first generation. Uh, my question um, is uh, concerning the recent comments by American uh, author James Patterson, who said uh, white writers are facing a different kind of uh, racism. Uh, as a fellow writer and author who's worked both sides of the Atlantic, I wonder what you thought about that. And um, connected to that, um, uh, I have a story to tell, and, and uh, I just wondered if you have any pointers for people like me who mm -hmm. probably don't have the avenue to, to mm -hmm. tell them uh, the initial steps. Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate. And I heard you correctly, right? You said I'm from Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, and you have, you said you are, you have a personal story to share. And and I think the world needs to hear that story because it, it it's just unbelievable how quickly Afghanistan stopped becoming the news. Right? That is unacceptable. It has to be the news. It has to be our center of attention many parts of the world has to be center of attention. So I think your stories will be so important for us to learn from. Um, with regards to the comment, you know, about white authors of a certain age uh, and privilege being discriminated against, uh, I, might, I will disagree with that. And it's very interesting that on the same day when this interview was published, I don't know if you've noticed there was a... Um, best-selling or, or something top 10, top 25 nonfiction list. Did you, did you take a look at that? There wasn't a single woman on that list. Nonfiction. Nonfiction. There wasn't a single woman that week. How is that possible? 
you know, there's, there are still so many barriers. Sometimes people think that in the Western world, there's no, you know, gender inequality, discrimination or discrimination against minorities. That's, again, that's not true. So there are lots of glass walls, not only glass ceiling, but glass walls, which you don't realize until you bump into it. And it is much harder for younger women. It is much harder for especially younger women coming from disadvantaged backgrounds or minority backgrounds, and it's equally harder for minority background authors. So within the publishing world, we don't have enough diversity. We need to have these conversations. I'm not even talking about how your book will be reviewed. I cannot you know, tell you how many times I have been gaslighted, mansplained. Uh, I have had male literary critics in Turkey saying, let's see what our daughter has written this time. The guy who writes that is my age and I'm not his daughter, you see, but just because he's man, he thinks he's somewhere above. So I'm not even talking about that, but even the process of getting published, how your book will be received. There are lots of glass walls and it's harder for minority background authors. And if I may add this very quickly, I think there's also a lot of um, boxes within the publishing world. Like if you're an Afghan women writer, for instance, if you're a non-Western writer, especially women writer, you're not expected to write sci-fi or experimental or avant-garde fiction. Why shouldn't you be able to do that? You are expected to write novels that tell you know, how sad life is for Afghan women. You might want to do that. You might not want to do that. It's up to you. Or maybe one book will be like that. The next book will be something completely different. Why are you or why are we denied that kind of freedom? You see what I mean? So especially non-Western authors or authors from minority backgrounds within the Western world are very quickly put into boxes and you're expected to write in a certain way. It is a big, big struggle for all of us. And we need to share these stories so that the publishing world uh, learns to become more diverse, more inclusive, and more egalitarian. So much to chew over and absolutely fascinating. So it's so many just really interesting insights, including about the way the publishing world works. Uh, but thank you so much, Elif, today for uh, a, a very, very uh, interesting, fascinating discussion. Thanks for everyone to everyone for your great questions. There are lots more exciting events coming up. There's an event uh, tomorrow. Uh, do take a copy of the program on your way out. If you haven't uh, got one already, uh, check it out. Also, there's lac.ac.uk forward slash festival, the website. Copies of Elif's book and uh, dare I mention my own book, which also has some real, real life stories about the, the merchants in Bolshevik Russia who survived and lived through a lot of traumas and actually their emigre uh, relatives in America. So really fascinating stories there as well. But Elif's book are available for sale here. She'll be staying around for signing. Please join us for a drink and join me in thanking Elif Shafak. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.